The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Cardboard Cave. Uh, I'm glad you found your way back to the cave. I know we've been uh, gone for a long time. Um, you probably just assumed the podcast is drying up and dying a, a slow, painful death. And you could be forgiven uh, for thinking that. Um, I wanted to get an episode out, basically, to say, hey, Cardboard Cave is not dead. Um, in fact... I'm finally getting excited about it again, and uh, I thought before I get into the topic of this episode, I should just explain that. Um, I don't I don't know what it was, but, well, let me just put it this way. I feel like anytime you do a podcast, anytime anyone does a podcast, it should be something they would want to listen to. And this might sound harsh, but what I've realized is these sort of dry board game podcasts that take like 45 minutes and basically just talk about one game in an episode. Unless I'm really excited about that specific game, I really don't want to listen to a whole episode about that. So I kind of had a moment of crisis (laughs) just a handful of episodes into the podcast and realized, I don't know if I want to do what everybody else is doing. I mean, um, I've realized some of my favorite podcasts and, and I'm going to go and shout out a couple, uh, board game snobs, it is a board game podcast, but they just don't do things the way everybody else does it, and they're absolutely hilarious. And uh, I kind of feel like they just have fun, and they're just themselves, and, you know, um, I'm still not totally sure what Carpenter Cave is going to be, but I've realized it's just going to be something I want to do. When I have something I want to talk about it, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, it's been harder than I imagined for me and my wife to both be on at the same time as our little boy gets older. I mean, it's obvious, but, you know, he... He just can't be left alone at all, really. Um, and when he goes to bed, my wife and I have time to watch a show together, and then I have to go to bed because I wake up so early for work. Blah, 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 blah. Basically, it's just not happening. <laughs> it's not happening, and I just wasn't, I don't know, I just, I wasn't inspired to record. And I realized the problem is, I was just trying to put out the same podcast that, I was trying to put out the podcast that I thought, you should put out if you're making a board game podcast. And then I realize that's not even the kinds of board game podcast I enjoy. Um, so I'm going to do something different. And right now I don't even know what that is for sure. But one thing I enjoy about stuff I'm obsessed about, which is board games is just topics. Um, just talking about a topic that maybe doesn't sound that exciting, but, uh, you know, I've heard people say recently, uh, I believe I'll do another shout out. It was Dan Hughes from the, um, sporadically bored podcast um said you know if someone's interested in something then they're interesting to listen to and 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 that that's kind of what i'm going to go with you know i get obsessed about stuff so i just hope that (laughs) you know even if it's not the most exciting topic maybe it'll be interesting to you um another thing i love are lists 
I love top 10 lists, top five lists. I just love lists. So that's something you can expect to see a lot more of. You know, I did the top, my top 10 most hated board games, which was kind of a mean list to start with, but you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek. I did that one. Um, but expect to see more lists, maybe about some very odd things that don't seem like you should have a list about it. But, um, cause you know, I, I don't, I don't bring anything. I don't have a good speaking voice. Um, it's really hard for me to have a co-host right now because like I said, me or my wife one needs to be taking care of the baby. So I don't really bring much to the table, uh, period. But if I talk about what I want to talk about, maybe it'll at least be interesting to somebody. That's what I'm hoping for now. Uh, maybe the show will never have a clear direction. Maybe it'll always just be whatever I want to talk about. And, um, when other people can come on, they'll come on. Um, I will go ahead and say, um, then I'll get into the topic and quit yapping my mouth. Um, we do plan to have, I guess, more of a normal episode soon. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Underwater Cities. It's something I'm excited to review, something I want to do, so therefore I'm going to do it. And we're actually going to try to have not only my wife on, but uh, uh, my wife's sister, Kelby, who has become quite a gamer herself. And um, she wants to be on that episode. Like she said several times, she wants to do it. So we'll see how that goes. But today, I want to talk about the shelf of shame. You know, in, in board gaming, there's this term people like to throw around, the shelf of shame. Um, and usually what people are talking about is a game that sat on your shelf for a long time, and for whatever reason, you never played it. Which I know is crazy, you know, to your average person who's not obsessed about board games. That sounds crazy that you would buy games, pay good money, and then the game would sit there for years. But I can tell you, um, I mean, I'm as a potentially crazy person, I've had games on my shelf, my shelves, that for one reason or another, literally for years, just sat there. And, you know, it's, maybe it's just a matter of I got the game because it was a good deal, but then I never found the right time to play it. And it's like, at some point you have to ask, well, why do I own it if I've not found the right time to play it in years? So... I don't know. The shelf of shame is kind of uh, a silly. Like, if you're ashamed of what you own, then you should just get rid of all of it. That's just silly. But, yeah, it's it's a snappy thing to say, so I guess that's why people say it. But there does come a point when you're like, okay, I've got these five games sitting right here that I've had for somewhere between six months to maybe six years in, in some cases. I need to play them and get rid of them if they're not fun. You know, just get get them off the shelf because one thing I do think is true in life is having too many choices is not good. And sometimes I believe if I could eventually weed my collection down to only the games I know that I'm excited to play, that other people are excited to play, and those were the only games on my shelf, that would actually be a lot better. <laughs> and so this is sort of the start of that process. Um, I've got... A small pile of games here. Like one, two, three, four, five, six. I've got six games I'm going to talk about briefly. I'm not going to go in depth about any of them. But they're off my shelf of shame now because I've played them at least once each. And um, I thought this would be something fun to talk about, even though, frankly, most of these games probably aren't even in print anymore. Probably were never exactly classics to begin with because, you know, for one reason or another, I waited a while to play them. But let's just let's just get into it. 
Uh, let's talk about, and, and some of these has been a while since I've played. So honestly, I can't go in great detail because I've already started to forget. Uh, getting old sucks. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, but it's just the truth. Uh, Sunken City. Um, it's a big box. Let me try to grab it here. Oh, Sunken City is, um, a board game by Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling, who are two of my favorite designers, especially when they work together. Um, but this is an older one. It's from, and well, board game terms, it's older. It's, uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, nobody cares. It's, it's, it's an older game. <laughs> two to four players. Takes about an hour. It says ages eight and up. Um, it is a game that I have owned. Oh, ah, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, somewhere between seven and 10 years. <laughs> I really don't know. I, I think it's maybe seven years, eight years. I don't know. Um, it is a game I got for a bargain. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers Tanga.com. I think they're shut down long ago. But Tanga was a place that had random deals of the day. And for whatever reason, they got a lot of board games. And I think I got this game for like 10 bucks. It's a very pretty game. It comes in a long box. Um, it has plastic buildings. The, the theme is you're trying to, to raise up these buildings from the sunken city. I think it's supposed to be Atlantis. You're trying to raise up these buildings from the city. So you can basically steal the treasure out of them, then get back to shore before Zeus comes and kills you, basically. <laughs> um, uh, the, the plastic buildings, well, they're plastic and they're printed on all the sides. They are very pretty. It's a very, very, very attractive game. Um, the version I have is from Uberplay. And when I got it, it really stood out just for how pretty it was because this was before a time when it seemed like every other game that came out had amazing production values. So, um, it is definitely not one of Wolfgang Kramer or Michael Kiesling's like medium heavy classic Euro games. It, it's, it's more of a, it's almost like an abstract strategy game, but with a really, uh, rich look to it. And the thing does kind of work, you know, raising these buildings out of the water. The plastic pieces are honestly <laughs> the big drawing factor here. And this is one, unfortunately, it's been a couple months ago when me and my wife played it. We played it two or three times and I liked it. I won't say I loved it, but I think my wife actually liked it more than I did. In fact, um, you know, one of the things I'm deciding as I go through these games from my shelf of shame is, okay, now that I played it, do I get rid of it? Do I donate it? Give it to a friend? Try to sell it if it's worth anything at all. Some of them aren't. Some are. Or do I keep it? And this one, I was teeter-tottering because it's fun, but it's a box taking up room on my shelf. And is it worth keeping? But my wife enjoyed it enough that, yeah, I'm going to keep it. Um, it worked for two players. It says it plays up to four. I don't see why it wouldn't work for up to four. Basically, what you're doing is you're laying paths out. You're, the idea is you're raising the paths out of the water. And to get your pawn, your playing piece, to these buildings, collect the treasure associated with that building, and then um, make it back to shore with your treasures. If you get caught by Zeus, and the other player can help with that by moving Zeus toward you, uh, you um, you drop all your treasures and have to go back. I uh, don't really remember a lot more than that right now. It's kind of an abstract strategy game, but it's got some thing to it as well. It's fun. The rules are simple. And it's not one I would seek out and pay high prices for. 
But if you get a deal on it like I did years ago and you find it for less than 20 bucks, I don't think it's a bad choice. Um, in fact, I think it's better than, than people say it is. You know, the reason I got it so cheap is the reviews were not, they're kind of mixed on it. I remember, I think it's a pretty good game. Um, yeah, Sunken City. All right. Next, uh, Portobello Market. Portobello Market is a game by Playroom Entertainment, who I don't think make games anymore. It is designed by Thomas Odenhoven, who I don't know if he's done anything else or what he's done. Um, this game I picked up at a actual physical store. It was, um, uh, Hobby USA. I think they're still around. The one in our town closed down, but they sell a lot of uh, uh, RC cars. That's what ours is really focused on. You know, planes, cars, model trains. But they also sold some board games. And I picked this one up there. Honestly, a bit of it was on a bit of a whim because it's just such a pretty cover. Uh, it's a pretty looking game. The art is pretty. Portobello Market is a very abstract game, but it does get by somewhat on uh just how pretty the art is it's like this uh well portobello market i think is a real place i'm not sure where it is london okay it's in london and uh you're trying to put out your market stalls in areas to attract the most lucrative customers that's the idea how it actually works is there's this black uh pawn that moves around called the bobby and on your turn you can move the bobby but to move him you actually give up victory points but the bobby decides where the stalls can actually be placed. So you can really mess over your opponent. Um, or you can set yourself up well. And the customers are these wooden meeples that are drawn out of a bag. And these little wooden people um, uh, are different values. <laughs> so like you're... It's kind of a uh, insensitive game, I guess, <laughs> that way. The pink uh, meeples represent aristocrats and they're worth more points. Than your average commoner. Um, they're special black meeples that I can't remember what they represent, but they're the most valuable. It's like if you got a pink meeple on one end and a gray on one end, it's worth a certain amount. If you just got a gray on both ends, that's the weakest combination. Blah, blah, blah. Bottom line, you want to have valuable rows of market stalls and you want your opponent not to have them. Huh. It doesn't sound interesting, really. Um, it is an abstract game that happens to have really pretty art and kind of a theme attached to it, but I really did enjoy it. It is, I heard someone say about Portobello Market that it is not the kind of game that's going to be anyone's favorite game, but it's very pleasant. And that may not sound like enough that it's going to stick around, but Portobello Market is sticking around for now because me and my wife both enjoyed it. Uh, I believe I enjoyed this one more than Sunken City. Um, I'm not sure which my wife preferred more, but, um, I enjoyed it. In fact, the rules are so simple. It plays two to four players and I thought it played fine with two. I've not played it with more than two yet. I think it's supposed to be even better with three and four, if I'm not mistaken. This is a really good family game. This game, the rules are so simple. I would say if your family enjoys, you know, Ticket to Ride or, or any, you know, family style game, and you can find this cheap enough, I would say give it a go. I don't think, again, it's not going to be anyone's favorite game. There's no reason to pay super high aftermarket prices for it. But if it is pretty cheap, like I think it probably is, I think it's worth checking out. It's a fairly light game, but it is, it's is—it's got some thought involved. There's some decisions to make. 
um, pleasant is the best word to describe it. Okay, let's see. Next, we have the Bridges of Shangri Law. <sighs> the Bridges of Shangri Law is a game. Oh, Portobello Market, by the way, I have had probably for close to 10 years, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because um, that, that place, that the Hobby USA store I bought it from, has been shut down for years. Anyways, that's why it's called the Shelf of Shame. It is kind of shameful to have something that long and not even use it. The Bridges of Shangri-La is even more shameful. I think I've had this game uh, 10 years. We're going to say 10 years, but honestly, it could very well be longer. Because I've been in this hobby for like 18 plus years at this point, you know. Um, and I remember this is one of the first games I bought because, A, I got a good deal on it, which is usually not the best reason to buy a game. I've learned that. But B, Leo Colavini is the designer of the Bridges of Shangri-La. And early on in my gaming career, one of the very first games I bought was a game called Clans. And Clans is a little abstract game that me and my brother and my cousin, we just had a blast playing that game. And we didn't know about so many other games. It was a simpler time, but we just loved it. And so I thought, I'm going to give another try to a Leo Calvini game. The Bridges of Shangri-La is a much heavier game than Clans. There's more going on. It is an odd, odd game. Like, and I'm going to be honest, the box has three to four players, which is exactly why it sat on my shelf for a decade unplayed. Because I play a lot of games with my wife, and this game says it only plays three to four players. So, and when I got three people coming over, or four people willing to play a game, the Bridges of Shangri-La just never made the cut. You know, in the favor of some other stuff. So, but I did find out there's no real reason you can't play it with two. It works the same. So I thought we'll just try it and see how it plays. And then I'll be honest with you. We both just thought it was an odd game. I believe we tried it three times altogether. And every time we're like, I don't know. Um, we were doing stuff. I mean, the rules work. It's not complicated to figure out. But we never once felt like we really got a good grasp of, okay, well, why are we doing this? Why... Why is this a good move, or why is that a bad move? Um, I don't know. It was an odd little game. The board is just graphically dark. Like, they needed to lighten it up. It's just not the kind of game that's ever going to beckon me to take it off the shelf. Um, I don't believe it's worth anything. I believe it's it's uh, it's not going to sell for enough on eBay but to be worth selling it. But I think it is one that's going to leave my collection, because when am I going to pull it out? You know, when there's so many other games. Um, so that's not really one I recommend. Um, the theme is very pasted on. It's about monks traveling around to different schools, um, trying to become masters at the different schools, but it's very much an abstract game. Um, there's barely more theme than a game of chess, honestly, just barely. So this one's a miss for me. Um, but I do think I see why some people might actually love it. The last game, Portobello Market, I said, I don't think it's going to be anybody's favorite game, but I think it's very pleasant. Shangri-La is just the opposite. I think this could be somebody's favorite game because it it seems very deep. Like I feel like it's a very deep, abstract game um, that I think if you get a couple of people, uh, probably better with three or four people, who really get it and really click with it, I, I do think it could be something special. Don't get me wrong. But the fact that it doesn't really seem to play well too and... It just didn't click for us, so I think I will 
clear that one off the shelf just to have one less box to look at when I'm trying to decide what game to play. Just to have a little bit of uh, clutter removed from my life. All right, that's three down, three to go. We're powering through this, folks, because the next game is Dream Home. Dream Home, now I've only had this game less than two years. Uh, I would say less than two years before I finally played it. Dream Home is uh, a card drafting game, I guess you would say, first and foremost. It's from Asmodee. They did not put the designer's name on the front of the box, which I think is a shame. But it's Clemens Kalicki, or Kalicki, one of those. And all the artists, give them props. The artist is, oh my goodness, uh, <clears throat> Bartomej Kordowski, something like that. And I need to call out the artist because the art in this game is gorgeous. This is one of those games, if your family member sees it on the shelf, they're going to be like, ooh, what is that? And that is exactly why I got this game. Because the theme is you just moved into your dream home and now you're you're putting in rooms that you love and you're designing your house the way you want it. It's just a wonderful theme. And the artwork is beautiful and charming and innocent, almost whimsical. Um, it's, it's It just it begs you to play it. Um, and I got to say, me and my wife really enjoyed it. It is not a heavy game. It is very much a family weight game. I'm not going to sit down with with the guys on game night, which, good lord, because of this pandemic, I don't know when we're ever going to have another game night, but we barely did anyways. <laughs> That's a topic for another episode, me complaining about not having true game nights. Um, but it's not a game I'm going to sit down you know, on a serious game night and play, but when me and my wife just want to not think too hard and cool off after a hard day of work, it's great for that. Um, it's one that I believe when my son gets older, you know, it'll be five or six years probably, but when he gets older, absolutely think we'll enjoy this as a family. Um, the box has 30 minutes and I feel like the two player game was even less than that. Um, this is very pretty. You have your own house board that you put the cards into that represent the different rooms. And of course they score different ways depending how you lay out, excuse me, depending how you lay out the rooms. And there's a draft board in the middle of the table, and you pick the card you want. Um, and your opponent picks the card they want. And there's some rules to how that works, but that's why it's a drafting game, because you're, you're drafting your favorite cards, basically, which are the rooms that go in your house. There are some kind of fun, hard decisions to make occasionally, but it's pretty lighthearted. Um, it's not heavy on strategy. There is luck, but it's perfect for what it's trying to be. And so Dream Home was definitely staying in my collection. I actually liked it enough. I got the little expansion that came out. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's in the box now. It just adds a few more things. I think it makes the game play up to five or six people, at least five. And turns are so quick in this game, I actually think it would work fine with five. But officially, it only plays two to four if you don't have the expansion. Anyways, that's Dream Home. I think it's probably still in print. It's probably getting close to being out of print because... Games just don't stay in print long anymore unless they're a mega hit. I mean, it's just how it is. I recommend this as a family game. I really do. Like, I'm not saying that because it's off my shelf of shame. For a family-style game or just a lighter game to play after a hard day of work, I really recommend Dream Home. Um, yeah. Dream Home is a winner. And that's, I think I want to talk about Rob and Run. This is Rob and Run. And that's Rob like robbing a bank, and then apostrophe N, run. Robin Run is a game by Michael Liu. 
It was published by Rio Grande Games. And this is one of those games that just got no love when it came out. I mean, even if you're a hardcore gamer, there's a good chance you've not heard of this game. I just happened to come across it. I don't even remember why. Um, and it is one of those that that I, I got a, some of it what of a discount, I think. But also just started reading about it, and it's like, it sounds pretty cool. So Robin Run is basically Hanabi, the board game. And some of you just gagged, and some of you are excited, because Hanabi is one of those games that became so popular, it's kind of popular to hate on it a little bit. But Hanabi, you know, was this game that's kind of brilliant when it came out, where where you hold your hand of cards backwards, where you can't see them, but everybody else can. This is, well, you don't do that in this game. But it's a cooperative game, like Hanabi. You're all winning or losing together. You're playing bank robbers, and you're trying to escape the police, and you're trying to rob these banks on your way to the airport to escape. Um, you're really greedy robbers. Like, you're not just trying to get to the airport. You've got to rob all the banks on the way. <laughs> but the way it works is you take turns being the, the, like the leader, the gang leader. And the gang leader um, picks two safes that he wants to rob. There's a big pile of tiles. And on the back of these safe tiles... Um, it'll show you what is needed to break into that safe. So you might need two dynamite, one flashlight, a battering ram, and a security badge to, to break in this safe. Or this other one might need uh, two flashlights and two security badges. You know, whatever it is. And only you know what that is, and all the other players are playing cards, hoping to play the right tools. You're the boss. They're hoping to give you the right cards so you can break into the safe. But only you know what the safe needs. Um, and the way you communicate information to them is, is really where the game is. It's where the game shines. There are certain questions you can ask. And they're printed on these tiles. And once you use a question up, you have to flip it over and you can't use it again. Um, there's a way to get them back, which I won't get into that. But uh, that part's very much like Hanabi, where you use up your... your uh, I can't remember what it was... Um, but you, anyways, your token, and you flip it over. Anyways, for example, one of the statements you might make as the boss is you need the tool group, and then you give a group of tools. Um, or you need a total of X number of tools, you know. Or you need blank types of tools. And, and some of the questions get pretty creative. Those are pretty basic examples. But you want to use the right question or the right, right statement because when they start, when your team starts throwing the tool cards in there, face down by the way, only you'll know who threw in what um, it can be it, it can be tricky because you, the the other people only can play the cards they have um, but they're also trying to figure out what you need and for every tool that's played that was not needed, it's bad it makes the the security alarm get closer to going off basically Anyways, it's kind of hard to explain, but the end of the game, the goal of the game is to to rob these banks, and the more safes you crack, the further you get to move ahead on this circular board to try to make it to the airport and escape. And so, and like Hanabi, you can win, but barely win, and get a worse score, or you can really nail it and get a better score. But I'll say just winning is hard enough, in my experience. I played this... Just as a two-player game with my wife, and it was pretty fun. 
but I played it twice as a four-player game, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun as a four-player game. It plays two to five. I think it works with all those numbers, but we really enjoy it as a four-player game. This is a cool game. This is a cool game, and it is going to stay in my collection because I don't have anything like it. Though the core game reminds me of Hanabi, it plays very differently. It really is like Hanabi, the full board game instead of just a card game. The only knock against Robin Run, and I think the reason, it just nobody talked about it. There's just something slightly off about the production of the game. All the components are a good quality, but I don't know. The box is kind of an unattractive orange color. My wife, for example, really does not like the character designs, which I think that's personal choice. Um, the back of the box is so plain. Um, the rule book was fine, but then there's a few things that were kind of important that should have been better. I believe, and I love Rio Grande games because they've been around since before I got into the hobby, which I can't say about many publishers, but sometimes they'll put out a game that seems like it really could have been something special, but it's like they just didn't quite commit to it. And that's a shame. But I wouldn't let that scare you away too much. It's If if, if you're up for, this is a little heavier than like Dream Home or Portobello Market, which I just talked about. This is like a next step up from something like Ticket to Ride. Um, But if you're willing to deal with a slightly wonky rulebook, it is a fun, fun game that is a little flawed just because of the production of it, but is really close to being to being great. Really close. Um, and I do recommend it. I think it's probably still cheap if you can still find it. Um, it's a shame that they didn't quite get the production right because it... it it really could have been advertised almost as Hanabi the board game and people would have ate it up. Um, anyways, so that's Robin Run. <sighs> um, yeah, I think we have time to go and talk about the last game. I thought about saving it. This last one's kind of the one I wanted to talk about most. Um, and this is by far the heaviest and I would say by far the most popular or at least well-known among gamers game that I played from my shelf of shame that I'm talking about today. And that's Aquasphere. Aquasphere by uh, Stefan Feld. Stefan Feld, one of the most prolific and popular board game designers, especially these heavy Euro-style games in the business. Aquasphere, however, has never been his most popular game. Um... But it's one that kind of appealed to me, and I picked it up, I'm going to say three years ago, give or take. I really don't know. I'm bad with time. And finally got it off my shelf of shame about a week ago. <sighs> Played it um, three players both times um, with my wife and Kelby, who I mentioned earlier, my wife's sister. And, um, yeah, wow, okay. <laughs> Aquasphere, I, I'm not going to do a full review because actually we, uh, I think Kelby mentioned she wants to talk about this game and I don't want to spoil her opinion, so I'll just give mine. Um, this game was surprisingly hard to teach. I mean, I've taught games. You know, I've taught uh, Agricola and um, um, La Havre and uh, Grand Austria Hotel. You know, those are you know solid medium weight games. Not the most complex games, but not the simplest either. Um, and then I've been fine, you know, but this game, I struggled a little bit and I'm going to say, I'm going to use a word my wife used. Um, so I guess I am stealing her thunder if we talk about this in a later episode, but 
um, convoluted. Unfortunately, I do feel like this game's a little convoluted. I do not think it's a bad game. In fact, I think it is a very well-designed game. I think it works. As far as I can tell, it's balanced. There's not much luck involved. Um, but not only is it convoluted, but the thing does not make it easier to teach. And that is so important. You know, you take a game like Agricola, and some people don't like the theme in Agricola. It's about farming in the Middle Ages. But the theme works so well with what you're actually doing in the game, it actually makes it easier to learn. But Aquasphere, I love the theme. I do. I love the theme of, of this underwater lab, and you're trying to be the most successful uh, scientist in this underwater lab. And these octopods, or like these purple octopus things, are kind of a nuisance. So you're trying to clear them away while you're researching new things and and building submarines and blah, blah, blah. Cool theme. But nothing you do really matches up with that very well. I tried to convince myself it does, but it really doesn't. Which made the game harder to teach. And it is convoluted in the sense that there's so many things going on at the same time. And I don't, that does not make it a bad game. But I think I'm realizing about myself... I prefer a more streamlined game. That's why sometimes I prefer the older games. Like from Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling, for example. Um, I prefer some of the older games because I think they would just intentionally leave some of the ideas out. Don't put in all the ideas. <laughs> and it's probably not true. This game was probably streamlined a lot. But I feel like Aquasphere is a game where every idea that Stefan Feld had made it into the game. I'm sure that's not true, but that's how it feels to play it. And I'm very, very disappointed because I wanted to like this game so much. First of all, the 12-page rulebook is way harder to get through than what it should have been. And it's not its not because the rulebook is bad. It's just because you have to play it before you get it all. Like, oh, okay. For example, at the, at the heart of the game, it's a worker placement game. You're placing your robots out to do stuff in this lab. But to even have a robot to place, you have to program the robot. And to program the robot, you have to look at this totally separate board from the main board and move your engineer around to the correct programming spot to program the robot. But even then, the robot's not on the board. You have to take a totally separate turn to actually put your robot out. And even then, you can't put the robot somewhere if you can't get your scientist to the correct place, and that takes time, and sometimes you don't have time. And yes, that's what makes the game strategic, but I feel like there's about two or three things too much going on in this game. And not to steal their thunder, but I'm pretty sure that's basically how both the people I played with felt. Um, I am not willing to say this is a bad game, because it definitely is not. I am willing to say, for the work it took to learn this game, I think I'm just going to get rid of it. Because... If we wait six months to play this game, I'm going to have to start from scratch, learn the rules all over again. And I just don't think it's worth that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have two other Stefan Feld games, and I really like both of them. Castles of Burgundy. Everybody likes Castles of Burgundy. <laughs> okay, that that's a no-brainer. That game's amazing. But the other one I have is Luna. And Luna is one of his oddball games. That is not one of his most popular games. I love Luna. I like it a lot. Um, and Aquasphere is also sort of an oddball Stefan Feld game. It's not one of his most popular. So I had high expectations. 
Luna had a lot going on. It's not the easiest game to learn and teach, but I thought it flowed well once I played it. We played this game twice, and honestly, the second game, I think it was harder on everybody than the first game. It's like, we know how it works, but when we stumbled upon a good strategy, it wasn't satisfying because we almost didn't do it on purpose. (laughs) I mean, the first game, my wife blew us away with score. The second game, I blew both the others away. Um, It wasn't even close, but I wasn't satisfied because I don't, I don't know. There's just so much going on. It's almost too smart. You know, you've heard of like a a movie that's just one step too smart for its own good. Uh, That's this game to me. It's it's one step too smart for its own good, in my opinion. And maybe we're all just idiots. I mean, that's very possible. But but it certainly made us feel that way. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. That's Aquasphere. Um, It's it's not a very expensive game. I know that because I looked. And I'm not going to make anything on it by selling it. (laughs) But at this point, although it's by a renowned designer and I like a lot of things about it, I think it just makes sense to clear it out of my life. And next time I want to play a game that's kind of a heavy game and hard to learn, pick one of the ones off my shelf that I know is good and I know is a dependably fun time. So that's Aquasphere. And that's all the games. All six games from my shelf of shame. So, I, you know, out of six, I'm keeping four, getting rid of two. Whether that's good or bad, I guess, depends on what you think the point is of playing games off your shelf of shame. <laughs> um... But, hey, that's not too bad. Uh, Shangri-La, The Bridges of Shangri-La, and Aquasphere, Aquasphere, unfortunately, um, are going to find new homes somewhere. Uh, Robin Run is a game I think was let down by the publisher, but it is well worth uh, fighting through some nitpicks. I think it's an excellent and pretty unique game, despite feeling a lot like Hanabi in some ways. Dream Home is a great Light, super lightweight, but great fun, beautifully produced, um, well-themed family game. Sunken City is a, is an abstract game with really cool 3D pieces. Um, Portobello Market is a great family game when you want something that's, that's kind of brainy, but not, not like chess brainy, more like, mm, I guess more like checkers, but I don't like checkers, so that's a bad example. Uh, thinky, but not too thinky. There we go. Whew, and that's the games from my shelf of shame. And we'll see what happens next time. Um, I don't want Cardboard Cave to die, but I'm going to do things I want to do. And if, say in six months time, I realize absolutely no one is listening, maybe I'll just stop. Maybe I won't. I don't know. But I don't blame anyone for not listening right now. I've been extremely inconsistent, but we are going to do better. We're either going to do better or we're going to shut it down. So there's my promise to you. Um, hey, we have a Facebook page, Cardboard Cave. Please like the page. Have an Instagram page, uh, Cardboard Cave. Go uh, follow us on Instagram. Let us know what you think. If you're listening, you know, uh, get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram. I'd love to know if anybody's listening, frankly. Um, I know I'm not I don't even know what I've said for the last almost 40 minutes so I'm going to shut up now please let yourself out of the cave at your own convenience um, we have had some heavy rains lately so there's a underground stream has really risen so just, just watch yourself on the way out 
And, um, hey, you're welcome back anytime. See you later. <laughs>